So we are so excited to have Lindo Bacon here with us. Lindo, I have heard so much about you. I've also been so influenced by your work, having worked at Opal for so long and learning about the Health at Every Size movement for many, many years. It's a privilege to have you, and it's a privilege to also have gotten to have your your new book, Radical Belonging, in our hands before it's even released. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for um, talking to us about your work. That's very sweet to hear, Carter. And I also just want to say that one of the things that I love is how all of us are finding ways to incorporate the same message in our unique ways in the work that we do. And I'm just so honored to be part of this community of amazing people doing the work that they're doing. And I love that I get this platform, right? And that, you know, I'm in the public, but I'm also so conscious of the fact that this movement is so, so much bigger than me and that there are so many amazing people who are listening right now and are advocating and um, helping us to create this culture that we want. And, you know, I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of that and to have this public forum. Mm, You said that very beautifully. I think that that really puts it well. And I think for those listening, I bet a a bunch of people know your name and certainly know about the Health at Every Size community and the movement. I think it would be interesting in your words to hear a little bit about what your career has looked like, who you've been within the Health at Every Size movement, what you've been up to lately. Maybe that's a lot of questions at once, but (laughs) love to just kind of get that. Yeah. Yeah. And you said we have 40 minutes. <laughs> I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> no, no, that, that's a rather broad question. And I'm just trying to figure out where I want to focus there. First off, I should, I, I want to make sure that the audience is aware that I didn't create health at every size. I'm just one cog in this big wheel and health at every size was around long before I came onto the scene. I think I helped to get it more out into the public eye. Um, because I had published some of the first research, and then I came out with a book of that title. But it's a huge movement that's much bigger than me, and there are a lot of people defining it. And when I first came into Health at Every Size, I didn't have a strong conception of social justice. For me, a lot of it was just about looking at things like weight and eating and activity. And when my first book came out, it was very much of a self-help book that looked at how do you navigate those difficult terrains? And things have changed quite a bit since then. My awareness of what contributes to how I feel in my body and what I need to celebrate my body has evolved. And I've realized how limited that conception is and how much it shuts so many people out. And over time, what I realized is that the real issue that's beneath all of that, that's at root, is how do we create a culture of belonging where we all feel like we're included? And that it's only once we do that, that people can then make those smaller decisions that help in eating and activity and looking at the issue of body. So my work has definitely evolved over time, but I think it's 
that I'm getting closer and closer to the very issue that I've been trying to tackle since day one. Mm, that is so, I can totally relate to that process, Linda, too, having seen for us at Opal kind of starting with understanding of the social justice issues around weight, but then kind of missing the whole, all of the systems of oppression that are at play throughout racism and ableism and classism and all of that, that, that I know that we have missed. So I think the thing that I saw so strongly in getting to also look at your book on this early side is that emphasis on connection. And I mean, radical belonging is, yeah, it's that connection between human to human and it, it's so woven through the book of like how you're able to share your story. But I've always known that about you. I mean, the first time I heard you, you were sharing your personal story in the Health at Every Size movement and trying to get that message out. Yeah, I just really appreciate that and kind of hear that connection piece, that human connection as something that will continue to help heal and help people find what the next steps are for who they are and who they're supposed to be in this world. You know, There's something in there that I also want to expand on because... Like, I imagine, let's help to keep a focus on eating disorders since that's, you know, your community <laughs> and the kind of work that you do. And I think that one of the ways to bring this back to eating disorders is recognizing that, like, when people have a problematic relationship with eating, right, when it's difficult for them, a lot of it is because it's a very individual relationship we have to food. Like food takes on different meanings for everyone. Like on a basic level, we all have different cultural traditions, for example. And so certain foods are going to be more comforting to us than others, right? There's so many different levels. So what this means is that we can't define a singular idea about how to eat because it's so individual and culturally based. And in a culture where people don't all belong, where it's built around certain ideas, like it's framed around cis white women, for example, there's going to be certain things that are more meaningful in eating for that particular group. But it's not going to address, say, like people living in poverty, for example, right? The idea of intuitive eating takes on a very different form if you don't have access to all the foods that you love. So this idea of belonging is going to help us to look at eating disorders in a very different way. It's going to help us to focus in on what is it that we need to do for you as a particular individual to make sure that you are seen and heard and how do we meet you in a way that you feel loved and valued and appreciated and can make choices that are going to support you? I, I love that. You said something in your book about moving your focus from kind of more of what I think of as, as the traditional body positivity of like really loving your body, embracing your body, learning to kind of yeah, accept and adore it and its particularity. You said that that wasn't enough, that actually we need to move more toward an idea that all bodies res deserve respect and care. And I, I really appreciated that nuance. And I, I want to hear you speak a little bit more to that in terms of these different intersections you're speaking to around how one one version of eating wouldn't really work for someone else or one version of acceptance might not work for somebody else. Well, one thing that might be a little bit of a segue off of that question is to just 
reemphasize that point about self-love isn't enough because you could love yourself unconditionally and then you walk out into a world that doesn't love you and doesn't treat you well and it may be because they've got you know the outside world has a judgment that your body isn't good enough and so no matter how much you love yourself you can't take away that context so we have to figure out number one how to keep loving yourself when you get messages back that keep undermining it and saying you don't deserve love and how to have compassion for yourself when you live in a world that doesn't treat you very well and how do you keep extending that love to yourself? If I want to kind of keep connecting it back to this theme of belonging, this is what our role is as healers and as therapists, is to create a space where people can experience that unconditional love. And that's what we're doing in our Zoom sessions today or <laughs> therapy rooms, whatever, whatever it is making space for all somebody is like even the rough edges that they have the stuff that might not be so likable about mm -hmm. them or that they might not like about themselves but making room for finding space to just appreciate that person at core because not everybody gets a chance to experience that as much as other people do so we need to figure out how to do that in our therapy rooms, how to do that in our primary relationships, how to do that for our friends. And that's not easy, you know. I get frustrated when some of the, when my friends do things that are hurtful to me. Yet we have to persevere beyond that to figure out how we still make space for the fact that we're going to mess up sometimes and come to a deeper sense of love and belonging. So what does that look like? <laughs> I, well, I just, I know like you have so many great tips and also explanations in terms of sort of the interpersonal neurobiology of connection within your book. And if you, if you could, I would love to have our listeners kind of get a little bit more of that particularity around what this means. Yeah. And the personal work, because that's what I was struck by too in the book, is like the personal work of both understanding our biology and the, the neuroscience behind why we think the way we do and then why then we interact with each other in the way we do. But then take that and then actually take the risk, like take the risk to counter what maybe our brain is telling us. I appreciated that. And you're going to do, you could get into the science of it, but it did feel like there is good, rich content in the learning in your book but connected with the personal vulnerability that you share, but also that I think will enable others to take risks in these ways too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I, I just want to acknowledge how difficult all of this is and before I kind of leap into the science, <laughs> because what we see is that humans on the one hand are wired biologically for connection. When people hurt us, it sets off things in the brain that um, 
like we experience emotional pain in the same way that we experience physical pain. Rejection hurts. And so just like we want to keep ourselves safe and not get physically hurt, we want to keep ourselves safe and not get emotionally hurt. So risking putting ourselves out there and being vulnerable and letting people see us and risking rejection at the same time that we want it and are drawn to it and need it, we also have biological protections that say, uh-oh, you know, you may not want to go there because it can hurt. It's a really difficult lifelong journey, I think, to figure out how we navigate making ourselves vulnerable so that we can actually be seen and connect. Because if you're not vulnerable, if people aren't seeing you, then you can't get true connection, right? They're connecting with this facade you're presenting, not who you are. You're not going to get true acceptance. So on the one hand, vulnerability is necessary for connection. And on the other hand, we have to figure out when it's safe enough to be vulnerable because sometimes it's not. Sometimes people are going to abuse that. And many people have the experience, for example, in childhood where they didn't have safe conditions that they were living under and figuring out how to protect against that was important. And certainly all people with marginalized identities, and most of us experience some kind of marginalization in our identity, you know, very few of us fit into that mythical person who has all of the power in the world, right? Most of us with marginalized identities are constantly getting um, the message from the outside that because of this aspect of our identity, we don't have access to full belonging and respect and opportunity. So that sets us up as humans for a difficult path. It's our entire life of trying to navigate that, of finding out how we can both push to maximize vulnerability and at the same time, keep ourselves safe. I appreciate you saying that's our entire life. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that, that is, that sums it up. Yeah, that totally sums it up that that is the dance that every single individual does to varying degrees and to varying sort of levels of pain and their own identities, but also just in their own relationships to try and figure out how do I be seen and, and get my needs met? How do I be seen and get my needs met and then be safe too? Yeah. And so I think we all have to look at personally then what, what are the areas in which we don't feel so safe in the world? Hmm. And how can we protect them and what is it that we need to do to feel more safe? So, for example, one very common thing for people who were assigned female at birth is the idea of not feeling safe in their bodies, like that their bodies are subject to a male gaze and that they only get power and acceptance when they meet certain ideas of what is attractive. And most people don't feel like they measure up, which will then set them up to always look at their bodies as their failure. Mm -hmm. And 
it becomes a difficult challenge then to figure out how do I celebrate this body and take good care of it when it's what separates me from getting the love and appreciation that I want in the world. So that's why body image becomes such a central issue for people to deal with. And so it becomes very individual for everybody about what are the stumbling blocks that make us feel unsafe in the world? Where's our vulnerability? Because other people aren't going to have that same vulnerability. Some people might be more classically attractive. Um, Not that that means that you're going to feel that (laughs) acceptance, right? I mean, that brings with it a whole host of other vulnerabilities and challenges. But I just think it's important that we all have to start from figuring out what are the ways in which we don't feel safe being vulnerable in the world and we don't feel respected. And then we can figure out are the strategies that we need for our personal situation to try to reclaim that so that we can feel okay with ourselves even if we're not getting that reflected back into the world. But this stuff becomes biologically wired into us from a pretty young age when we're constantly getting messages back from the outside world, whether it came from our families or whether it came from a culture, whether we saw it when we applied for jobs, you know, whether we felt it in the classroom. It's not like there's a path that everybody goes on that's the same. But there are some universal truths of ideas that we can apply. So, for example, one of the biggest universal truths is we all need some self-compassion. And you kind of speak to that as resiliency building, right? Like having some of these things, like having cultivating that self-compassion as one of the ways that we would build resiliency that when we are maybe feeling rejected or feeling in a threat mode that we can figure out how to get into safety mode, right? Exactly. And it's amazing too that you realize that this is also very biological, that when you offer yourself some self-compassion, you're actually releasing hormones that can help to settle you down and that the more frequently you are able to do this, like if you have a regular practice of self-compassion, you wire yourself so that it's a lot easier for you to handle it when you're not treated well. You build a biological resilience through practice. Do you have a personal practice of self-compassion? I do. And it takes a lot of different forms. One example of something that I do regularly that um, I think is a pretty easy practice and I really want to encourage people to do, and that's that I have a regular gratitude practice where I just stop and think about what is it I have to be grateful for. And um, I can certainly remember at least one time in my past, for example, that I just sent an email to Julie just saying, hey, Julie, thinking about you, I love you, Uh right? You know, just feeling gratitude for having you in my life. Uh That practice um, helps me to connect with goodness, 
right? And at the same time, it's helpful to Julie as well to be on the receiving end. Like we're helping our friends to build up their resilience all the time as well. And that's the beauty of that kind of a gratitude practice is it's not just helping you, but it's your practice in the world and helping make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And when I receive that kind of gratitude for my friends, it, it, it's what helps to make me stronger. So that's an example of something that I think is accessible to all of us and just helps in an amazing way. I love that idea. I feel like when I'm talking to my clients about self-compassion, uh, I often find myself, you know, in the role of a therapist saying that phrase out loud and almost like eye rolling in the back of my own head of like, of course, you know, therapist says, oh, we just need to offer self-compassion. And, you know, I have, I can think of a handful of clients that have like nodded over the years and gone, yes, 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 yes. And then after a few months gone, you know, Carter, I have no idea what you're talking about. Conceptually, I've been agreeing with you and I think I have no idea what you're saying actually. And so I do find it so is so helpful within your book that you are sort of spelling out these different spaces of compassion and connection. And I know that, you know, for, for me, one of the things that comes to mind always is I've said this so many times on the podcast, but my own uh, relationship with writing is a place where I get to actually talk to myself and go, okay, this is the horrible thing I'm thinking about myself, or this is where I'm feeling really vulnerable, or this is where I'm feeling insecure okay, what would someone that was compassionate say to me about that? What are the, what are the feelings that I, I wouldn't be able to access with my own sort of primal energy right now that allow me to sort of slow down and really see this differently and see myself differently? That then sort of primes the pump for some connection with someone else and actually being able to receive. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think the idea of bringing other people in can be helpful in so many different ways. Like one is, yeah, if I can't offer myself compassion, I can think about someone who loves me and what they might offer to me in that circumstance or what I would want from them. And that helps me to see what it is that I could consider offering to myself. That's one thing. And then Another thing that I think about when I think about how a lot of people don't know how to offer up compassion or that the real issue is that they can't see it. It's not that they don't know it. So for example, I imagine that most people, if you see somebody with crutches approach a door and you know you realize how difficult it is for them to actually open the door, are gonna open the door. Mm -hmm. Like we have that compassionate instinct, but it's a lot easier to offer up compassion to somebody else. So that that's another thing is you can just imagine somebody else in your circumstance. What is it that you would offer them? And then you can turn that energy back on yourself. But the key thing is we all have that healing energy within us, but we just need to figure out how to find it and access it and to recognize that we deserve it. Your chapter in the book around why it's called Why Self-Help Won't Save Us is coming to my mind right now because in that chapter you talk about sort of some of the 
particular language or attitudes within the wellness world or sort of this um, popular thing within psychology right now of, of learning how to be authentic, but that that in and of itself sort of is, is insufficient in some ways to really be able to address um, the layers of need or the layers of lack of belonging that some people feel. And I'm losing my actual question around that, but I, I'm like, I don't know. I just, I think that that is weighing on, on my heart and my mind as we talk about self-compassion and maybe again, back to what I said before about sort of people being comfortable with that phrase, being comfortable with the idea of it, but that some of the nuances of really getting your sight to be clear on behalf of someone else's experience is really difficult. It's really difficult. I hear you. It is. <laughs> yeah. You spoke um, a, a good bit about your own gender identity throughout the book. And I don't, I don't know if you feel open to talking about that on here as well, but I'd love to hear sort of how your journey with your gender has sort of helped you to understand the kind of the depth of these ideas. Yeah. And it, it's interesting, Carter, because you asked that question and tears came up for me because I think that um, the re one of the reasons why the issue of belonging is so important to me is because much of my life, I didn't feel like I was seen. And so therefore, I don't feel like I belonged. And a lot of that stems from the fact that when people see me, they see woman. And that was what I was assigned at birth, you know, that I was told that I was a girl and later a woman. And it's never how I saw myself. I tried to see myself because that's what everybody told me I was. And so when I was younger, I believed it. And yet I felt some sense of disconnect all the time. Like there was something wrong with me because all the, it just didn't quite fit. In the early stages, like the second wave feminist movement did a lot of damage to me because the first way I had of approaching that was thinking that there's so many different ways to be a woman and that we don't have to ascribe to the usual gender constructs, you know, that it's okay to be masculine and you're still a woman. It was about just trying to feel comfortable expressing a butch identity and that that was okay. So that's the state that I existed in for a really long time. And, you know, I think what I came to realize over time is that that, that box just doesn't work for me. And that while I understand that most people believe that there's, there are these binary boxes, you know, that you're either a man or you're a woman and that those are the only choices. And if you fit into one of those boxes, it's really easy to think. So, you know, why not just be there? And I think it could be really hard to understand when I say that that doesn't work that there's something that's very personally felt that doesn't allow all of us to just 
grab a box and make it our own. So what I feel happens all the time is that people have this default conception. And so everybody's been seeing me as a woman all the time. And so to get beyond that, I have to assert myself because even when I'm just who I am, when I'm presenting myself authentically, because people have these ideas of what a woman is, they're putting me into that woman box. Mm. So it's interesting. I mean, the people that are closest to me in my life, they see me for my gender identity. They don't see me as woman. But without knowing me, mm. most people are predetermined to kind of put me into that box. And I think that we're moving to a cultural point right now where we're recognizing that that doesn't work, that we shouldn't make assumptions about somebody's gender based on our ideas of what gender is. And so that's why, for example, we're suggesting that people share their gender pronouns rather than making an assumption we know what their gender pronoun is so that we can make sure that we're seeing people's identities because if we don't ask people's identities, we can't know. But we're living in a culture right now where not so many people fit into that world. And a lot of people do make those gender assumptions. And so that means I have to constantly assert myself to be seen. And one of the things that's very exciting to me about this book is because it's demanding to be seen. I'm telling people, this is who I am. And I'm really glad to get that out into the world and hoping that it'll help insulate me a little bit more so that I don't constantly get misgendered. Mm -hmm. It's really painful for me, you know, to be on an email list. And, you know, just today I was on an email list and somebody uh, started out an email to the chains with late by addressing us as ladies. Mm -hmm. Immediately I feel othered. Like I'm not really part of this group. Mm -hmm. And it demands me doing extra duty to be seen. Like I don't automatically belong in the way that many other people just don't, like a lot of people don't have to think about their gender because they're just seen for it all the time. I think that that's why this is such a, this book is not just um, a political ideology for me, but it's, demanding that the world see me on my terms and taking up my space of belonging. It's very moving to get to hear you talk about that and and to share all of that with us. And I think that the book really does do that so beautifully. And I'm also so struck by how how you are willing to share your own story. It sounds like you're also like pressed to to share it like internally that this is the thing that you are are needing and wanting from the world as well but in in so doing that you're also creating and carving space for so many other people to be able to think about themselves outside of these boxes and to assume more complexity of themselves and of other people yeah yeah i think it's it's a beautiful thing too that all of the ways in which we express our identities and particularly our difference, 
opens up the spectrum for everybody else. I mean, cisgender people are hurt by these gender binaries, just like transgender or in a different way. I mean, think about how wardrobes could be expanded <laughs> if we didn't, you know, all the possibilities that are open to people that they don't get to see because we've set up these binary boxes and that the more those of us break out of those boxes, the more it gives other people freedom to play within the box. Mm. I think one of the things I'm struck by too is that for you to get where you are has required you to go towards your pain. And that's something you speak of in your book. And I saw some of that thread, but I think to recognize, like to have pushed it away for as long as you did, then at least since I've known you, I have seen you more go towards it. But I think it was before that, before me knowing you, you were pushing it away. And I think that that's a message that is so important for people to hear is that we must go towards our pain to be able to, yeah, that's only going to cause more pain if we don't go towards it and not avoid it anymore. And I think that, man, there's just so much of the pain that's caused by the context and by how others are perceiving or how others are treating each other. It's scary, I, I, I guess, right? It's like, who wants to go towards their pain? <laughs> but I think your story and, and therefore the book is such a story of hope of why. Why do we go towards it? Because there is something on the other side of that that actually is more beautiful and more true, right? It's just more full. I, I think the continual theme of that in, the, in, your, in your life and your story is that I think is going to continue to encourage people to do that hard work. So. That's really beautiful. And um, thank you for bringing that up, Julie, because I want to emphasize here that there's a loneliness that I previously felt because I wasn't seen and that I've always carried this fear that if I asserted myself, I would get rejected. And on the one hand, I want to say there is some truth to it, you know, that I have gotten some rejection and that I know that there's going to be people that are out there that are going to be scoffing at this whole idea of genderqueer that are going to continue to want to call me a woman and, you know, feel like this is problematic and um, that this is, you know, personal hangup that I feel like I'm a failure as a woman. I mean, we can come up with all these things like... I've been hit with that many times already. And so this expressing this kind of vulnerability isn't always easy because as much as I want to just dismiss that, it still hurts to be on the receiving end of all that. Yeah. And at the same time, the rewards I'm getting from being finally seen and the deeper relationships and the intimacy and the relief of not playing this role is immense. So um, I'm not going to tell people that this is an easy path, but I am going to suggest that it's so much more rewarding that there was that constant loneliness that I felt that I don't have anymore, or I, it's much lessened at least. And that's beautiful. And I also want to say though, that we need to make choices carefully. 
I have a lot of privilege that makes it a little bit more safe for me to do this. I'm not going to recommend that everybody come out to the degree that I have. People are getting killed for being trans today. So it's only because I have a lot of privilege that the ways in which I'm not privileged, I can be open about and that we all have to navigate this carefully and that we have to work towards a world where we're creating more safety for people to be their authentic selves. And until that happens, authenticity is a privileged person's mecca, right? And authenticity is not something that is as accessible to everybody. I hope that we can all at least find those pockets of safety where we can be our authentic self and then figure out the ways in which protection is important and valuable. Uh, amen. I was like, just taking that in. I think that you just said that so beautifully. And I think it's so important to recognize that the New Age movement is not doing this for us right now. Right now, it's just valuing authentic selves without recognizing the cultural context for it and how privileged that is. Yeah. So this is someplace that we really need to fight back on in recognizing this issue. Absolutely. Yeah. In terms of safety... I, I think I want to bring the conversation a little bit back towards eating disorders because, Lindo, you spoke to your own history of addiction and eating disorder, and it reminded me of just sort of the, the way that eating disorders and addiction of any kind can uh, act as a way that we both translate our experience to ourselves or to other people, or we communicate a pain that can't be communicated elsewhere, or we enact something upon our own bodies in some cycle that we, we believe we can't get out of, or we're trapped within out of our own feeling of lack of safety or something of the sort. And so with all that you've said, I just really wanted to make sure that we stated too that like this idea of belonging and this idea of seeking safety and authenticity, if done thoroughly, if done in a way that is culturally contextualized and really is seeking out the root of pain, it should be something that is an antidote to the the loneliness of an eating disorder or sort of the limited communication that is an eating disorder or an addiction. Yeah. And I think within that question, one of the things that's really helpful for me in framing eating disorders is to look at an eating disorder as your way of protecting yourself from pain. If I'm feeling discomfort with my emotions and food comforts me, then it's a way of taking care of myself. And that's beautiful that we have ways of taking care of ourselves. And so my eating disorder saved me. You know, I didn't have skills to know how to take care of myself when I was younger. And I'm really grateful that food was there for me. Yeah. And I also realized that it also brought pain with it. And that there's a whole host of other ways I could take care of myself that didn't have the same kind of pain. So healing from my eating disorder was really, wasn't about villainizing eating. It, instead, it was about celebrating 
that I had ways to take care of myself and expanding beyond food as the only one, recognizing what food does best at taking care of things like physical hunger and, and other things, you know, food also bonds us to other people. I mean, there's a lot of great things about food, but there were other things that could help me meet my emotional needs much more successfully than food did in the long run. And learning all of those skills of taking care of myself was what saved me. But recognizing that the eating disorder did get me through a difficult time before I had those skills. And then I just had to learn them. Now, in an ideal world, we learn those self-care skills in our families from a very young age, and we don't need the eating disorder to take care of us. But that's not the ideal world. Um, and sometimes even with the best and most nurturing families too, the lore of the culture is so strong too to undermine whatever skills we learn in our families. So I think that's another part of the lifelong journey is developing all of the millions of different ways we can to take care of ourselves and nourish ourselves and you know, give love to ourselves. Lindo, I, I feel like I could talk to you for a really long time. I feel very inspired by your words and your story. And um, that gets me excited to keep digging even deeper into your book. And also I feel really hopeful around what so many people will be getting out of Radical Belonging. Where will people find it and when will they find it? November 10th is the magic date. And it's, go it's available in all bookstores. And I also want to mention one other thing that's going to be exciting. And that's, I will also be launching an online community for people to explore these issues in greater depth called the Radical Belonging Community. So if you wander over to my website, lindobacon.com, you'll find details for everything. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. And it, it, you wrote in the preface of the book a bit about this book um, coming out at a time of a lot of loneliness and a lot of disconnection and a, a lot of turmoil. And so I'm, I'm excited for people to have that opportunity to be in community with one another in particular um, during this time. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Lindo. It's been quite a pleasure. It's been lovely to be with the two of you. And I don't know. You made me relax. I was nervous coming into this, but it felt like such a beautiful conversation. It was nice to be with you. Thank you.